0: All my life I've been a traveling man. All my life I've been a traveling man. Staying alone and doing the best I
1: can. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Ghosts, Dogs, and the Law on Constructing Criminality and Negating Persons. Our intro music tonight comes from Blind Blake, this is Police Dog Blues. Our program is a conversation with Colin Dayan, author most recently of two lauded books, With Dogs at the Edge of Life and The Law is a White Dog. She's at work on a memoir now, Animal Quintet, sections of which have appeared recently in places like the Los Angeles Review of Books and the Yale Review. As much of Dayan's work centers on the way the law has been written to serve the white master, We begin with the discussion of the recent police executions of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. Killings I've heard called extrajudicial, meaning no accusation, no trial, no jury, no judge, just death by cop. Though Dayan claims these are wholly sanctioned by laws which were formulated in and through the slave owner's nation. Dayan calls this ritual repetition. What comes through for me in this interview and in reading these books is the way in which what is going on today is as much a reenactment as it is new or even intensified. At one point, Colin Dayan calls the persecution and execution of black Americans a kind of phantasm that has always existed, but seems to require fresh categorical sheets for us to see it. The construction of the slave as criminal serves the requirements of the 13th Amendment. Its first section reads in part neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Colin Dayan is Robert Penn Warren Professor of the Humanities and Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University. She joined me from her home in Nashville, Tennessee via Skype. Please forgive us a few audio anomalies throughout. Dayan details civil death in the U.S. as a good example of the nation's exceptionalism and the way that prisons transform the incarcerated into negative persons Via indefinite solitary confinement and the severe restriction and limitations on reading.
0: I guess I travel on, guess I'll let her be she takes her dog I'll
1: It's an interesting thing to have you know, woken up and, and seen in, in these continuing um, horrifying images, you know, with Alton Sterling and Baton Rouge and, uh, was it Philandro Castile in St. Paul? Um, this sort of violent and uh, I guess authorized or out maybe outside of authorization either, either they or, or something they call extrajudicial perhaps violence. It's outside of due process and in a, um, in a way that the law has its way with dogs, I suppose. And we can go into that. It's, um, it seems like within your, the body of your work, you can see us working through this idea of um, representation, you know, within, within um, the, the creature or the being that is, a, that is a less than or as we conceive as less than and, and how uh, it could stand in for how we treat um, people as well or how we conceive of people in that same space and how the law has worked to codify them in similar fashion, if, if not exactly the same fashion. So it's been, it's been a really fascinating journey with you through um, these, these two books in particular, and then reading what you've shared with me of your memoir as well. Um, so it's, um, it's kind of like, what's, what's ghosts, you know, what's dogs, what's the law, these things kind of become representative of other things. It seems like you're, you're doing some work to move in, into and through that.
2: For me, what matters is tracing how what we call extrajudicial uh, punishment, as you describe the latest executions, are actually condoned and sustained by law. And and that's what really interested me in the law as a white dog. The way what we think of as a kind of legitimacy, is itself a manner of um, sustaining and certainly perpetuating, in highly uh, unexpected ways, sometimes uh, the very kind of killing that we are now, you know, that we abhor and that we see. The language of punishment interests me greatly. The language of law that doesn't die. So when I say the haunt lives on and lives on in ways of embodiment, it's important to understand that the, these, these, what lives on is also a kind of ritual repetition of terms that go all the way back um, to slave cases, on through our Eighth Amendment cases, and certainly the kinds of evasions that we face whenever a black person is executed is part and parcel of that that old history, so that I'm a person who does not believe in, shall we say, progress. In fact, you could argue that these practices are even, as I said in a, in a Twitter post, more pernicious, uh, more frightening, because they um, they have a veneer of something different, something new. So I, I suspect I'm rather pessimistic about change in this country. I think that the hatred of color and of difference and the need to promote whiteness is so extreme that even our media is contaminated as they report these killings. And I think it's crucial also to recognize that the spectacle that is being made of these videos is in itself something very akin to the kind of spectacle that we saw during lynching,
1: The idea of the words as they continue to be repeated, uh, recycled, used again, uh, cover different issues or uh, find ways to cover up different things and saying that the law has has been a sort of uh, hardly a continuum rather than a, a just a blanket that has continued to cover us, I suppose, in the ways that allow these things to be. And I think in particular, as you walk through the, the Rehnquist court and on into I guess Rehnquist two which is Roberts, in in your The Law as a White Dog, it just it just you just struck me over and over with that, as you say, the the consistency of these efforts over time. You know, the consistency of this language. Uh um, well,
2: maybe speak to that just for a minute. I mean yeah. I think that as many people have recognized and this is where the Law as a White Dog began. It was thinking about um, the confinement of prisoners in the United States as another form, or an alternative uh, to slavery. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to Adams, was wondering about how might we find receptacles for that race of men. If they were to be free, and that always haunted me this idea of receptacles for a race of men and I think that the very formation of course of our penitentiary system was founded uh, after you know slavery was abolished as the Thirteenth Amendment uh has that wonderful parenthetical uh that slavery is abolished, except in the case of uh, those who have committed a felony. Um, I'm roughly paraphrasing it. But I think the question for me, which perhaps will lead us back to what we're experiencing today, is that the law as a white dog asked, what does it mean to be dead in law? I took very seriously the idea that what Someone like Orlando Patterson called social death of slaves was reinvigorated by what I speak very, very uh, carefully about as the civil death of those found to be prisoners sentenced to life. Civil death only took on this life in the United States. It's a medieval fiction that was lost uh, one you after the Middle Ages in England, it was civilly dead, civil to be civilly dead was not enacted ever for something like imprisonment. It was only in the United States, and I try to track how after slavery was abolished the first civil death statutes came about in New York. And so for me, um, the idea that we have certain practices that are anomalous in the so-called civilized world, indefinite solitary confinement or the death penalty, is not surprising given that we also have something called civil death, which is still very much, depending on what state you're in, part and parcel of what it means to be
1: imprisoned. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest tonight is Colin Dayan, author of With Dogs at the Edge of Life and The Law is a White Dog, How Legal Rituals Make and Unmake Persons.
2: The other thing I just want to say is that I used to write that slavery resurfaced under other names, but now I think that what's more concerning to me is that there is a way in which, through our prison system, the practices are guaranteed in rather detailed ways to construct persons that I say, I describe as dead in law. But beyond that, Um, as I write in the chapter Words Behind Bars, the prison regulations in many uh, state penitentiaries are geared to making sure that there is no reading allowed, that the isolation that is practiced is so extreme that you are confronting the transformation of not just a person into a thing, but as I argue, negative persons. I write a great deal about negative personhood because I think that what's important when we speak is to be very careful about our terms. I think that when we think about humans, that isn't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about persons, those in the Lockean sense who have will, affect. The notion of a person... Consciousness over time. It is that consciousness, it is that personhood that the prison system at its harshest is concerned with destroying. And that, for me, is a punishment worse than death. The idea that you could, as Charles Dickens said about Eastern State Penitentiary way back in 1835, that there was nothing more cruel, no physical punishment more cruel than this daily tampering with the human brain. And so I think that for me, the problem is how can corpses, shall we say, be legally fabricated? How is it that the law can allow for this destruction of personhood? And that is why uh, in the Law as a White Dog, I turn specifically to the reading of the case law because, again, I think it's in the language that is repeated over time uh, that you have the kind of destruction and racism that continues mm-hmm. unavailable.
1: Well, you have um, – mentioning Dickens there as well in Eastern State Penitentiary. I think you go into Benjamin Rush there as well and I think it calls up another interesting perspective in terms of liberal progressive ideas in this space too. Rush himself put his, his own child I think into uh, the this, this sort of type of prison situation that he thought would be reformative. Is that correct?
2: Yes, there were all kinds of experiments about reform and reformation. What do we mean by reformation? Is it a conversion experience of a religious kind? Do we use the religious conversion as a cover for the transformation of people into what we might call zombies? Right, I, mean, right. I think that um, these these kinds of experiments um, are at the founding. The, they are the foundation, you know, of our of our country. And I think there is something so specific to the peculiar violence um, of this country that is a violence that is carried out in law. From people I know, and I know growing up in the South, um, the law meant a lot. It wasn't that if you weren't a lawyer, you you, you wouldn't understand what was happening. It was the law that we understood to be at the root of suffering. And as I say at the very end of The Laws of White Dog, we knew the police as the laws. So law was never something abstract. It was something physicalized, it was as mean and scary as a Haitian spirit in the night. And that is what I wanted to do. I decided in the Laws of White Dog is to bring together what we think of as ghostly and what we think of as terrifying with practices that we think of as the most usual, um, customary and legitimate. That being the law. But it's also a very, very palpable ritual that can attack um, and destroy and dismember and mutilate. I mean, after all, undergirding everything we see that's happening today is the retreat by our media into, now we're going to have an investigation. Now we're going to turn to the law. Now we're going to hear from the Justice Department, and we know from all the previous murders that that is simply, I don't want to say a dead end, but it's a ruse, because the law, this law, our law, and the way that it is practiced, has never saved anyone who is considered outside the pale of human empathy. That means outside a certain elite. And I have to say, it is a white surround. I don't care how well we, uh whites are in this country. Race is the matter.
1: It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. You've been listening to my conversation via Skype with Colin Dayen, Robert Penn Warren, professor of the humanities and professor of law at Vanderbilt University. She's the author most recently of The Law is a White Dog, and with dogs at the edge of life. Stay with us for more of Ghosts, Dogs, and the Law when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. That was Reverend Gary Davis with Walkin' Dog Blues. My conversation for this program is with Colin Dayan, Robert Penn Warren Professor of the Humanities and Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University, who joined us by Skype to discuss the way our slave nation has codified the black body as a subject on the margins of the human. She traces the course of the legal language that continues to work through our court decisions to this day, language that haunts us, but in a very material and physical way, in her book The Law is a White Dog. In her subsequent and most recent book, With Dogs at the Edge of Life, Dayan relates her personal responses to the treatment of dogs and dog owners with her more scholarly pursuit of the black codes that still inhabit court decisions. Dogs as proxy for color, for poverty, for the category of the inferior, creatures termed pariah dogs, the pit bull, and the stray. When we went to the break, Dayan had discussed how, in her childhood in Atlanta, they called police and dog catchers the laws, an embodiment of a power that was seemingly out of nightmares. We continue the conversation with the ways that the law, materialized in police, creates unequal geographies in our country. A walk on a public street is a potential locus of terror for the black man. Colin Dayan on the terror of the laws continues on Interchange. It's easy to look at the way even our popular entertainments and culture um m- sort of mimic these or try to make these um these scary things that we we've, we've tried to make not scary I suppose vampires uh, zombies etc how they've they've become a part of culture as well and as you talk about it though it it becomes more frightening and you wonder at that cultural aspect that kind of takes away from the depth of this situation that you're talking about where these actors um, who perpetrate uh these kinds of things within the body of legal texts uh you get a sense of it maybe not intentional sort of demoniacs activity right it's like i don't know i don't know uh, if i would call it intentional but you know the 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 way the world moves underneath things and, and the way the language as you says kind of compels people to perpetrate that language again to perpetrate the language not only of power but of but of suffering, but of misery, but of, you know, um, degradation, that that's, that's what's happening daily. And it's one of those difficult things to confront when you, you talk about it, it. It brings it forward to me in ways that I hadn't, hadn't thought about, uh, especially when you talk about the laws and imagining the, 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 the violence and, and utter terror that, that police must bring to so many people.
2: Well, you know, as you speak, I, I I began uh thinking about what's really uh haunting me. That is that um it's so you know, we're talking about the law, but I think that there's also a way that the as we've seen again and again, uh with Dylan Roof after his execution, uh Of the minister and nine congregants in Charleston. I might be wrong, it might have been eight congregants. Um, He's asked whether or not he wants a hamburger. Then you get these police officers who have just murdered Alden Sterling in Baton Rouge. And we read that the um, head of the police force thought they should get a chance. That's what we do with our police officers. You know, we give them a chance to go home and think about it. And and the the unequal treatment in the most, you know, down to the most intimate details is what I think is going along with, you see, the legal. And we can't ignore these ways of, that we might think you know, trivial comparisons. I think that down to the rawest uh, layer of being, the, what's happening on our street corners, in cars, on stairwells, in the parks, in front of a convenience store, To be black and to be male and to go out and take a walk is a matter of terror. And so that's what, what I want to say is that the small daily actions, not just the larger rituals of law, but the ways in which we move through space, we move unequally through space. Our chances of getting from one place to the other are unequal. These are things so pervasive that have been continuing that what we're seeing in the actual execution is simply the manifestation almost ritually as if you were having a ritual sacrifice of what daily life is like. Mm, Right. right. But, of course, all of this is um, why I think that there might be, uh, and I say this tentatively, another political life Mm. that we might be able to learn. Um, There might be another way of thinking about politics by thinking about animality. And this leads me to really the current work and the, with dogs at the edge of life. And I say it tentatively, Doug, because I, I do think that you know uh, I'm very, very sensitive to the fact that as one friend wrote me, well, you know, you used to write about torture, solitary confinement, and now you're writing about dogs you know, why the escape, and I wanted, you know, and I did argue uh, that I wanted to discover another form of political engagement, um, experiencing to the best of my ability in writing viscerally the injustices that we've been talking about. So it's a radical materiality that I'm interested in pursuing in, in with dogs at the edge of life, but also in the future work.
1: What I would say is that it has a, a, a real, I'm um, just um, going to say bite to it, uh, which I didn't intend for, uh, for that to be the thing I said, but it does have a, a, a nice little um, shock and, and impact in its smallness even, in its, um, in its intimacy it's um, illuminating and hard at the same time to try to keep your head into that space where there's, there seems to be no way to be a person except as a subject. And how do we think outside of that or find some freedom in thinking otherwise? You know, how to find a way to think not as a subjected person it's such a nice intimate and and sharp and um um, a way to sort of cut through into that space and say we need to we need to look at things differently um studying the law and learning these things is to know the way the master has has caged you but then what
2: i guess uh for me i'd like My writing to somehow, as I say, be a reservoir, a very uncertain reservoir, um, on which all kinds of creatures might draw in some way, but most humans have learned to cut themselves off from um, completely. And what I mean by that is there are categories and hierarchies, as you know, that uphold um, our civilization. And those dichotomies um, or those taxonomies, more particularly, you know, operate and they always have since the natural histories of the Caribbean and uh, the justifications for slavery. They operate on a grid of value um, and insignificance. So there is a way in which the lives of the human and non human animal are most closely tied together, it seems to me. In situations of oppression, when what I've called rituals of terror are being practiced, it's not just that the dogs are killed by police. It's a lot of African-American dogs are killed by police. And there is nothing more terrible than to terrify a person already being sussed by a policeman with the killing of their dog. It's that kind of murder across species that is most terrifying about what's happening right now in this country. And um, we are in a really kind of critical, critical time. I think that if you were to ask me, so... You've been talking about another political life. I mean, what would that other political life look like, you know, in the current climate between a Hillary Clinton and a Donald Trump? Well, there isn't. <laughs> that is not the political life I'm talking about. But um, you know, we're at a kind of critical time..
1: I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest tonight is Colin Dayan, author of With Dogs at the Edge of Life and The Law is a White Dog. How legal rituals make and unmake persons. The, you know, the the continuing difficulty about this is that we are, you know, we are organized in a particular way that as you say, we continue to have these upper uh, not even upper level, but just conversations that happen in this abstract space while, as you say, the physical, the material reality that that so many of us struggle through day to day, you know, the particular struggles of uh, African Americans and Latinos and uh, um, uh, the impoverished white uh, uh, class as well that has that sort of you you begin to cross that boundary in your work as well to say, You know, dogs. uh, In in this situation, dogs are a a sort of a clear way to understand the indiscriminate violence of the state. That you can't, uh, if you if you have a mind that is racist, and you say to yourself, "There is um, there the the violence uh, enacted on a black body is." Is due to what they do they deserve it for xyz because of whatever reason you're going to call forth that in in your racist imaginings it is at the dog level that you you sort of you're sort of stuck and say but these are dogs and how do we craft you know that same kind of inhumane treatment so that you know we're we're sort of able to to enact these same violences upon creatures that people seem to love wholeheartedly and at the same time find their way into hating wholeheartedly, to look at things from that perspective, from within that world, and, and begin to see how class and human thinking and human hierarchies and these damaging perspectives of authority and law are visited through people's animals, through creatures, through the violence we do to the world that isn't human, that is seemingly intended to be human violence as well. Violence perpetrated against classes of people and colors of people. And that happens through Their animals and through their traditions as well to denigrate traditions of people. Um, also via these, uh, decisions at what you, I think you call the humanitarian level to, to decide that for humanitarian reasons, we need to get rid of certain creatures.
2: Well, it's a specific breed, of course. And right, right. I first was writing about when I wrote the piece Dead Dogs in the Boston Review. It was about the pit bull and uh, specifically which kind of people were targeted uh, with their pit bulls. And I wrote and thought deeply about how, you know, the African-American male was somehow laminated onto the pit bull, but also... For whites certainly um, it's stereotype. Given that there is no real pit bull gene for danger, just like you know there is no black gene for danger. I mean, the, st- the way stereotypes work through dogs and their humans was fascinating. Fascinating to me. Um, I think that the issue of um, breed bands and profiling is part and parcel. To me, what's what matters is that once you have the strategy or the framework for dispossession and harm, it can be replicated. I mean, um, when I wrote with Dogs at the Edge of Life, I was dealing with specific communities of people and their dogs, and I was dealing with a specific breed of dogs. It was only in the third section that I began to deal with what I call in that section pariah dogs. And those were strays that were found in cities or places that were rapidly undergoing modernization. And I think that what were I to be asked to write an afterward now, what I would want to do is talk about this whole idea of the stray. How We come to identify entities that don't belong, that are not part of the community, and that are therefore, even if they live in our communities and are our neighbors, are somehow deemed stray. And, you know, um, the idea of a stray was for Hannah Arendt one of the most terrifying even scarier she said than being identified as a criminal or a refugee to be stray to belong in some sense nowhere but also i would add to have upon you crept pushed upon you the idea that no matter what you do you are always going to be in a corner of the world that is not part of the center. It is the way that marginalization is working in the United States today. Um, It's, you know, when you think about uh, prisons, and I'm thinking, I'm kind of a stream of consciousness here, um, the idea, you know, was, well, you're a criminal, so we'd imprison you. And, of course, the minute you've been imprisoned, no matter what you've done, You have been criminalized. And I remember when I was writing The Laws of White Dog, I kept thinking, you know, this is not criminality that we're dealing with. We're dealing with the phantasm of criminality. How do you invent criminality? That's what the prisons are for, that's what the police are doing. That is what we, when we see this uneven prosecution and persecution, we are dealing with the construction of phantasms of criminality that is that have nothing to do with what a person does, what an animal does, or who they are. And if you look back at the Trayvon Martin and you look back, you know, at the Ferguson verdict and the transcripts, you realize that oh Well, you know, there was this threat. He walked too far to the right. He walked too far to the left. What I'm saying is once the damage is done, once the person is dead, once the person is convicted, they have been tarred with that brush of criminality and what Ruthie Gilmore calls premature vulnerability to death. Hmm. There is something in... Representing people or animals, entities, human and non-human, as always executionable, mutilatable, that are, are naturally incarcerated, that no matter what follows, has always already been prepared for by the fact that Those who are being executed, like those who are being imprisoned, are already and have been living under an unequal justice system which constructs the criminal in the very fact of perpetuating what they call justice.
1: It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. You've been listening to my conversation via Skype with Colin Dayen, Robert Penn Warren Professor of the Humanities and Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University. She's the author most recently of The Law is a White Dog and With Dogs at the Edge of Life. We closed this segment with the terrible idea of being termed astray with no social protection, which we might call our current marginalization project, marginalized by creating and applying criminality to the black body and the pit bull as proxy. Stay with us for more of Ghosts, Dogs, and the Law when Interchange returns on W F H B. Oh, dog! No. How's every day? My baby's
0: gone. Yes, he puts my mind on the wonder. I begin to think what's going on. Alone.
1: Welcome back. This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We just heard Lonesome Dog Blues by Lightning Hopkins. We begin this final segment with a look at humanitarian intervention in the guise of humane societies. These often serve as a locus of extermination. Does putting the word humane in front of a killing act justify it? Also, Dayan notes how the language of care is a language of privilege. We then turn to Animal Quintet. Dan's most recent work in memoir, that perhaps is a return to a writing she suggested she would not do in her 1995 book titled Haiti, History and the Gods. quote: "Let me admit at the outset that I am obsessed by Haiti for reasons that have much to do with my own vexed and haunted childhood, the uncertainty of my family origins and my confrontation with an always blocked, silenced or unspeakable history. I will take my reader on no backward turning journey into childhood terror fragments of denial, and lies that kept me forever outside, always on the margins of any place or self that could be called my own, unquote. The South of Atlanta, Georgia, is the context for this final segment with Colin Dayen on Interchange. <laughs> ¶¶ Now, you also do something similar, I suppose, or, or sort of use as an example the, um, humane society, which I think has us, comes to, uh, o- occupy that space in with dogs at the edge of life, uh, as an, um, an organization that has, like you said just then, already, um, chosen and decided and become an, um, an institution of, of that kind of decision making, where the Humane Society has uh, has what the not only the power but the way the way in which it operates to manufacture the uh, the way that we're supposed to think about particular animals, and and as you say, you it was the pit bulls, the breed bans with the pit bulls in particular.
2: They are uh, institutions of the state, um, and certainly in the forfeiture uh, confiscation cases I deal with in Dogs at the Edge of Life, they are empowered as police. Mm. They have um, the LSPCA Louisiana Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals uh, certainly had the right to take the dogs and euthanize all 57 of them overnight without due process, Mm. without a case, and the owner, Boudreaux, the so-called dogfighter was acquitted the very next day, but his dogs were dead. Um, I do think that uh, the Humane Society, as you mentioned the Humane Society, had a big part um, in using the, uh, in, shall we say uh, profiling the pit bull um, uh, and certainly the Michael Vick case did not help The Humane Society, however, wanted all of the dogs dead. Um, Best Friends Animal Society saved their lives. So, you know, part of the work I was dealing with in that chapter, when law comes to visit, was, you know, um, there's putting the word humane uh, before killing, excuse it. Um, You know, what is a humane justification for killing 57 dogs? I think one of the things that I write about um, in both books is the danger to return to that uh, of humane uh, professions of humane um, action. You know, the, the use of the word humane is, is always a, a dangerous one. It, it, it promises a certain kind of mercy or care and as we all know, uh, humane care, when it leads to extermination, is the worst. So I think that the language, um, you know, of humane organizations, uh, is always something to be leery of. You know, not to go too far afield. But something I'm writing about now is about the Creole pigs, and these were the black pigs of Haiti, the thousands livelihood of the peasantry. And USAID, along with other organizations, humanely exterminated them uh, because they feared there was, uh, this was false, it turned out, uh, they were carrying a swine flu epidemic. So, I mean, um, many people have dealt with um, the dangers of a kind of liberal humanism that ordains uh, certain kinds of exterminations or death, all under the language of care. But you can only, you know, be a person of privilege to have that position. Right. right. And uh, so the powerless uh, suffer very often from those humane uh, campaigns.
1: Well, you're, uh, let's, let's let's give you a chance to speak uh, to your, your work that you're doing for this um, uh, animal, as you call it, the animal memoir. Uh, again, we go back to the history uh, Haiti history and the gods and the um, the statement uh, of your own vexed and haunted childhood—is uh, that what you're uh, exploring in this in this uh, in this new work?
2: Well, Doug, that's a great question. Um, you kind of put me on the spot there. <clears throat> <laughs> okay, so it's called The Animal Pintet. and I, I think when you say, "Am I exploring the vexed uh, childhood?" Um, the childhood is vexed, uh, racially vexed, and. Uh, I think that the reason I can't write the personal memoir is that I don't really want to... I don't want to write about a personal, uh, at this point in time, uh, problem of racial identification. Hmm. However, I do want, without putting myself at the center, to write about um, the terror... And extermination that I experienced that was racially, always um, racially coded and racially enacted. And I'm finding that I can do that through um, the animals in more or less in my life are the animal stories that were always racial and racist stories very often. So the, the, um, the animal quintet is really a a way of getting at uh, both the terror and the um, racism not through the treatment of animals but through actually the use of of, um, animal stories, the ways in which um, animal songs that I heard um, came through to me and I think if I can be particular enough in this, and if I can be uh, specific enough, I think the details will tell the story of hate that I want to tell by whites that would have to have me as center. Hmm. And that would be important to create a kind of text that would be a medium for understanding the kind of long lasting and pernicious practices that we call racist, but that also have a kind of quality of jubilation and pleasure about them. I'm trying to get at that paradox of Southern cruelty that I knew in my childhood, that joined uh, brutality to laughter.
1: I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest tonight is Colin Dayan, author of With Dogs at the Edge of Life and The Law is a White Dog, How Legal Rituals Make and Unmake Persons. It's interesting how you work through the the legal rituals that make and unmake persons, and yet there are rituals, you know, all sorts of rituals that make and unmake us. And it seems like you're you're working to to understand those particular rituals that both uh, made and that you might want to unmake uh, out of your childhood as, as well. Um, and it's it, it's an interesting aspect of it that it's it's occasionally very as you say physical there's a lot of sexual you know the sexual quality to the to the work the idea that a lot of what's tied into this paradox of southern cruelty is sexual as well um you make use of um is it lucille um yeah she's she's an interesting i mean she serves as a kind of
2: she is the person.
1: Yeah, right? she, she's the, the kind of the, the guidance in some sense to, to the reader to to sort of see what's what you're being um, introduced to, what you're looking through, what you're hearing about the traditions of the South that you're... you're she's Jamaican form.
2: and she moved uh, to the South very, very young and she came into our household uh, gosh, when I was just two and... Uh, She raised me, and um, I guess that's a familiar story, of course, um, in the South, um, uh, as my parents were traveling. But she is the um, muse, and she saved my life many times through teaching me how to uh, have faith and how to experience everything around me. No, no, to retrieve her is an important, important part of the the word. I also think that she, probably to just return to ritual, um, you know, she always said that the only things that count are the things that you want to repeat. And um, the interesting thing about ritual is that unlike, you know, belief, or something like faith, it's always grounded in repetition and in the in the real, and I think that it's also highly historical and political. And so, ritual is something when I use the term that I hope keeps the feet, you know, on the ground and doesn't allow for a kind of leap um, into something magical. Because ritual is adamantly not magical. You know, um, one of the great things about ritual is you can take the most ordinary thing, you know, a Coke bottle <laughs> on your desk, and if you bring it into a ritual surround, it can become, you know, a vessel for the gods through how it's handled, through how palpably and repetitively it's passed from one to the other. And so for me, you know, when I use the term ritual, it has to do with a collective, it has to do with um, particularity, and again, materiality, as opposed to something that we can idealize or think that is uh, transcendent and separate from dirt. You know? It, it's always important to find uh, one's inspiration, it seems to me, uh, in what is disdained by those who value reason
1: well i like it i tell you it's the uh, it's the thing i like most about it because i have uh, struggled myself uh, against the i you know, the i guess the 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 primacy of of rationality you know the primacy of of the ways that we are experimented upon and and, and we continue to experiment with with our world without understanding and without even the patience to sit and listen and see and feel anymore. Um,
2: One thing I should add is that slavery was always justified as reasonable and necessary. And it's reasonableness, that term that goes through so many slave cases. What is a reasonable correction of a slave that ends in? their death, what is, you know, what is a reasonable uh, judgment? What is it, you know, of the death penalty? Reasonableness, you know, is definitively a term (laughs) that uh, civilization likes to use, not only against those they think that are, quote, primitive or unreasonable, but also a way of silencing actions that are perceived to be Irrational and again, you know um, I think that we need a little bit more of the irrationality uh, as as some uh, officials would call it right now oh, I
1: that's, agree entirely, and i uh, again, <laughs> I think it works works wonderfully against uh, you know the the technological i guess domination that that we sort of continue to to struggle to understand who we are in the world where we we only Comport ourselves with the machines. So uh, the dog is a good place to go instead of your iPhone.
2: Absolutely, which is now resolutely turned off. <laughs>
1: That's our show. Thanks to Colin Dayan for discussing her work on the parallels between the law's treatment of dogs and persons at the edge of life, and her hope that a turn toward the cognition of dogs, of the senses of animality, might offer us a new kind of politics in which the racist and denigrating legalisms that we enshrine as reasonable can be overcome and perhaps exercise the specter of slavery and the material reality of racism that continues among us. Next time on Interchange, Alex Lichtenstein joins us to discuss the feminism and photography of Margaret Burke White and her role in documenting the dawn of apartheid. As a photographer for Life and Fortune magazines, Margaret Burke White traveled to Russia in the 1930s, photographed the Nazi takeover of Czechoslovakia in 1938, and recorded the liberation of Buchenwald at the end of World War II. In 1949, Life sent her to South Africa to take photographs in a country that was becoming racially polarized by white minority rule. Life published two photo essays highlighting Bork-White's photographs, but much of her South African work has remained unpublished until now. Margaret Bork-White and the Dawn of Apartheid on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm, and I produce Interchange. Assistant producer and editor is Rob Schoon. Our board engineer is Jonathan Richardson, and Joe Crawford is executive producer. We'll close the show with Rain Dogs by Tom Waits. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.